This episode is sponsored by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it for free in the App Store. At approximately 3 p.m., May 20th, 1967, I was patrolling PTH number one, one half mile west of Falcon Beach, Manitoba, when I noticed a man walking on the south shoulder of the highway towards Falcon Beach. He was wearing a gray cap, brown jacket with no shirt, light colored trousers, and carrying a brown briefcase. This subject, upon seeing the police car, began waving his arms excitedly. I turned around on the highway and drove back to see what he wanted. He shouted to me to stay away from him. I asked him why, and he replied saying he had seen two spaceships. When I walked into the bedroom, a wall of odor struck me so hard I stopped my tracks. It was the stink of sulfur overlaid with ozone, a smell that comes out of a burning electric motor that has overheated. Together they formed a miasma of sickness, of wrongness, so much so that I froze in place. The public had a right to know whether this thing came from our planet or from another world, whether it was friendly or harmful. People should be told what it was all about. May 20th, 1967. A spring day like any other in Manitoba, Canada. But for Stefan Mihalik, it would be the last day like any other he would have for the rest of his life. His life and the lives of his family changed forever after an alleged UFO encounter in the Canadian wilderness. His story grew in fame with its stunning detail, physical evidence, and lasting effects on his health. And to this day, the case is highly touted by believers of extraterrestrial visitation due to the amount of evidence and government involvement. But how much of that evidence is valid, and just how much of the story is beyond reproach? It remains without much in the way of explanation, and today we're truly going to explore the unexplained as we take a hard look at the Falcon Lake incident on this episode of Blurry Photos. Hey everyone, welcome to Blurry Photos. I'm your host, David Flora. Welcome. Welcome to a fun deep dive into a very intriguing UFO case. Quick news, Derek Hayes and I have lined up the dominoes for our documentary, Shadows in the Desert, High Strangeness in the Borrego Triangle. We have a trailer which will go live on March 10th, less than two weeks from this release. We're incredibly excited to share this with you guys, and March 10th will be the launch of our Kickstarter, in which we get funding for the event, or don't, and it doesn't happen. We have four weeks to fund it, all or nothing. So mark that date, and I'll also be posting reminders and such. We've begun interviewing with our friends and colleagues to spread the word, the first being Into the Fray with Shannon Legros. so check out her episode with us when you can. It's going to be pretty epic. I can't wait to share it with you guys. I'm also excited to share this case with you, a topic that was a listener suggestion, one that I hadn't heard of before, and one that has quite a number of claims to parse through. 
As I mentioned, folks have held this up as a standard of UFO case study, and even beyond that, as definitive proof of things out there we don't know and or aren't told about. In researching this, I worked mainly from the book When They Appeared, Falcon Lake 1967, The Inside Story of a Close Encounter, by Canadian science writer and educator Chris Rutkowski, which also included the personal accounts of the experiencer, Stefan Mihalik, and his son, Stan along with several documents from Royal Canadian Mounted Police Files, hospital records, sketches, and more. And in reading over the claims, I got curious as to how things might be reproducible and if the science could hold up. So I also ran a little experiment, which I recorded on video. I'll have that video up on the Facebook page shortly after the episode is live. And since I was wondering about the nitty-gritty science... I called up friend of the show, Dr. Chris Cogswell from the Mad Scientist podcast to go over the chemistry and math of what was said to be experienced. So in this episode, I'll tell you about the encounter Stefan had, the investigations into it, and its impacts on him and the UFO community. Then I'll look at the claims in a little detail, ask some tough questions, see if there are any red flags or green flags, and leave you to decide what you think. So slam a shot of maple syrup, saddle up that moose, and keep your eyes peeled for DJs from upcountry, big shoots. We're heading to Manitoba. Get her patter. Let's get at her. <laughs> Stefan Michalik moved to Canada in 1949. Born in Poland in 1916, he served in the Polish army at the outbreak of World War II, and as you would expect, times were pretty turbulent for a number of years. He married in 1946, had a son and a daughter, but was only able to spend a couple of years with his new bride before being forced to escape from communist-held Poland in 1948. He eventually found his way to Allied occupation forces in Germany, and was able to immigrate to Saskatchewan, Canada. There, he worked as a farmhand and was eventually able to bring his family over in 1957. They celebrated with the birth of their second son in 1958. Mihalik's moved to Winnipeg, Manitoba, and he began working as an industrial mechanic at the Inland Cement Company. The family lived an average, unremarkable, content life until 1967. Mahalik enjoyed amateur prospecting in his spare time. He often got outdoors to spend his days searching the copious quartz veins of the White Shell Provincial Park near Winnipeg for minerals and precious metals. The area is located in the Canadian Shield, a region of exposed Precambrian and metamorphic rocks rich with deposits of nickel, gold, silver, and copper. No small number of mines had come and gone in the region, and Mihalik knew that quartz veins were sometimes indicators of ore deposits, especially silver in the area he was prospecting. He decided to spend the weekend of May 19th prospecting near Falcon Lake, a popular recreation spot 80 miles east of Winnipeg along the Trans-Canada Highway. He packed a hammer, map, compass, welding goggles, paper and pencil, and a little food and caught a Greyhound bus to Falcon Lake the evening of May 19th. After checking into the Falcon Lake Motor Hotel, he settled in and got a start bright and early at 5.30 a.m. Saturday, May 20th. 
Stefan had been in the area before, another expedition which yielded fascinating rock specimens that had piqued his interest. So he set out across the highway into the bush to find it again. He hiked for a while, had lunch, and was picking at a quartz vein a little after noon when he heard a sudden commotion from a gaggle of nearby geese, stopping and taking notice of them. He suddenly realized what had disturbed them. In the sky, approaching from the south-southwest, were two cigar-shaped objects, both with humps on them. He watched as they made their way toward him, maintaining a constant speed and distance apart, absolutely moving in unison, though separate, and glowing with a bright scarlet glare. They began to descend toward his location, when the one farthest away suddenly stopped, about 15 feet above him. The other continued down until it landed on a flat rock some 160 feet or so away from him. After about three minutes, the one in the air began moving up and away into the sparse clouds. Mahalik described what he saw, saying, As it ascended, its color began to change from bright red to an orange shade, then to a gray tone. Finally, when it was just about to disappear behind the gathering clouds, it again turned bright orange. Neither craft made a sound. The one that landed had changed from the glowing scarlet to a light gray, and finally, quote, to the color of hot stainless steel with a golden glow around it, end quote. Spellbound, he regained his composure after the craft sat there for a while and fished out his pencil and paper to sketch the thing. The craft seemed like it was made of a single piece of highly polished steel, and according to his sketch and description, to me, resembled a stemless martini glass wearing a bolero hat, like Zorro. I mean, that's one way to visualize it. You'd have to carve a pumpkin into a cone to better visualize it, I would say. It looked to be about 35 feet in diameter, and maybe 12 feet tall. He noted an opening near the top of it with an intense purple light coming out of it. He felt heat radiating from it and said there was a sound not unlike that of a tiny, fast-running electric motor. He looked for any kind of insignia or marking on the hull that might identify this thing, perhaps as an American military vehicle or NASA, but saw nothing. After a while, he decided to approach it. Within about 60 feet of it, he began to hear voices coming from within. He said it sounded human, though it was somewhat hard to hear. At least two distinct ones were heard, a high-pitched one and a lower-pitched one. This gave him confidence that the craft was not extraterrestrial, and he decided to make his presence known. Okay, Yankee boys, having trouble? Come on out, we'll see what we can do about it, he called out. The voices stopped, and no answer came, so he decided to greet the occupants in another language. Five others, in fact. Russian, German, Italian, French, and Ukrainian. After once again receiving no answer, he walked up to it to take a look inside. The light pouring out was intense, so bright that he had to flip the green visor of his welding goggles down to look at it. He described the inside as, quote, a maze of lights, direct beams running in horizontal and diagonal paths and a series of flashing lights, end quote. As he looked at the 20-inch thick walls by the door of the craft, 
Two panels suddenly slid closed, and a third slid down from above, closing the door completely. He stepped back and noted a screen pattern nearby, which he surmised was a vent of some kind. He described the openings as about three-sixteenths of an inch in diameter. Pretty small. The surface of the thing was described as looking, quote, like colored glass with light reflecting off it. It formed a spectrum with a silver background as the sunlight hit the sides, end quote. He reached out and touched it, luckily still wearing the gloves he was chipping rocks in, because the surface was hot enough to melt the tips of it. No sooner had he pulled his hand away than the craft tilted a bit to the left and expelled a blast of hot air or gas from the vent, pushing him back and igniting his button-up shirt. As he frantically tore it off and then his undershirt, he felt a rush of air, saw the craft begin to rotate counterclockwise, then rise into the air. It lifted straight up, then moved off south-southwest, the direction it came from, and as he watched it pass over the treetops, it changed not only color, but shape, until it disappeared into the sky. Though thoroughly bewildered, Mahalik had enough wits left to stamp out the burning shirts on the ground, not wanting to risk fire in the wilderness. He noticed a thick smell of sulfur and ozone, kind of like an electric motor that had burned out. After some moments, he decided to pack up and head out, but as he gathered up his bag and opened his compass, he found it to be spinning wildly, finally returning to normal functionality a few seconds later. He took a hard look at the landing site, noting the area had been blown clean of debris. In fact, according to him, the debris had formed in a circle some 15 foot in diameter. And then, the illness began. Nausea and headache struck Mahalik, causing him to break out in a cold sweat. He vomited, and through a growing weakness, grabbed his things and set off back toward the highway in his motel. More vomiting ensued, he suffered worse pain in his head, dry mouth, and spotty vision. He splashed his face with water and fought hard to maintain consciousness as he searched for the landmarks from the journey out there. A burning feeling from his chest began, and he looked down to see red spots from where the hot gas had hit him. He took his jacket off so it wouldn't touch the tender sores that were developing. He vomited more, though at this point it was nothing but bile and he continued stumbling along, hoping the path he was on would lead him to the highway. It did. Figuring he was about a mile west of where he had entered the woods that morning, he began walking east and luckily saw a Royal Canadian Mounted Police patrol car coming down the highway. He signaled and waved frantically, but the car passed him by. Confused and annoyed, he continued down the road, but shortly after, the patrol car pulled up behind him. According to Mahalik, as I staggered along the roadside, I heard a voice calling me. Turning, I saw an RCMP constable. Briefly, I gave him an account of what had happened, warning him not to come too close to me because I feared the possibility of spreading radiation. I asked about medical aid. Sorry, but I have duties to perform here, he said. I stared at him, unbelieving what I had just heard. He, apparently, did not believe a word I told him, otherwise he would have acted differently. Upon finally reaching his motel, he opted to stay outside in the woods for fear of spreading radiation to others. 
his head pounding unbearably. He sat in the woods, trying to think of what to do. Though he didn't mention what time he emerged onto the roadside, a later police report listed the time of the encounter with the Mountie as being around 3 p.m. At 4 p.m., according to Mahalik, he could stand the pain no longer and went to the motel's restaurant to ask for a doctor. Unfortunately, the nearest one was 45 miles east of there, so he returned to his room to lie down. At this point, he decided the news should be aware of his encounter, so he phoned the Winnipeg Tribune, but got no response since it was a Saturday afternoon. Not wanting to cause worry for his wife, he reluctantly called her to say he had had an accident and had been burned. They made arrangements for his son to pick him up from the bus depot in Winnipeg, though the next bus from Falcon Lake wasn't for another four hours. He waited at a distance from the bus stop, and when it arrived, he sat in the back away from other passengers. Once in Winnipeg, his oldest son, Mark, picked him up and took him to a hospital. He was given pain medication, treated, and returned home for a bath and rest. The next day, his head still hurt, his chest was tender, and he had no appetite. Even a few sips of tea made him vomit. A reporter and photographer from the Winnipeg Tribune came to the house that evening, and he told them everything. From there, a storm of activity began brewing, one that lowered over the family for years to come. He was seen by his family physician, who said the burns were only first degree and gave him some medicine for seasickness that seemed to help a bit. As the days went on, he felt a little better but still had no appetite and thus began to lose weight steadily. Calls and visits began, with people wanting to know more about the UFOs and his encounter. Finally, the RCMP and Air Force got involved, and then Mahalik states in his book that he had had enough of the exhaustive attention and began to shun it the evening after the encounter. So, if I read it correctly, all this happened in a few hours, maybe less, as the evening after the encounter was when the reporter showed up. Maybe something got lost along the way as his account was translated from Polish to English, but let's just keep going for now. He eventually traveled to Minnesota and the Mayo Clinic for tests paid out of his own pocket, one of which was a psychological evaluation that cleared him of any mental instability or malicious character traits. The shunning of calls and questions apparently made people suspicious and criticize him, which only furthered the mystique of the case. He received some good news on May 22nd, though. After a visit to the National Atomic Research Center at Pinawa, Manitoba, he was told no radiation could be found and not to worry about contamination. It was welcome news, but also frustrated the case, since no one could figure out what was causing the mysterious illness he suffered from. But he did begin to get better. And with his health improving, it was time to try and find some answers. During his convalescence, Mihalik became acquainted with Barry Thompson, an amateur ufologist and member of the Canadian branch of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, a civilian UFO research group founded in 1952. Thompson believed the encounter to be extraterrestrial and took it very seriously, which was comforting to Mihalik amidst the chaos. On June 4th, Mihalik decided it was time to return to the site for some answers. He set out, accompanied by Thompson, 
John Freed of Life Magazine, and Dr. Roy Craig of the University of Colorado Boulder. More on him later. Unfortunately, the group was unsuccessful. Mahalik could not locate the site again, two weeks after the incident, blaming nature for changing so quickly. Mahalik had been questioned by RCAF squadron leader Paul Biskey and RCMP Corporal Jerry Davis. In fact, a transcript of an interview between Davis and Mahalik is included in Rutkowski's book when they appeared. That had taken place on May 24th. In the ensuing weeks, he worked both together and separately with the Air Force and police to try and find the site again. He accompanied police in a helicopter to search from the sky with no luck, and tried searching with them on the ground again, still coming up empty. During this time, other reports began to surface of objects being seen in the sky from around the 20th. Also during this time, an itchy rash appeared on his chest up to his ears, and only went away with medicine after a couple weeks. Determined to find the site again, Mahalik decided to enlist the help of a local electronic engineer named Gerald Hart, who had offered his services earlier. Hart was relatively well-known at the time for his constant sparring with the government, an agency he distrusted to no end and was not shy about making his feelings known. He offered his cabin and resources to aid Mahalik in the finding of the landing site again. On June 30th, they did just that. He found the remains of his shirt, his tape measure, and the ring of debris. He also gathered scoops of soil and rocks from the area for later testing. Once home again, he called the RCMP, and two days later he was leading Corporal Davis, squad leader Biskey, and a couple others to Falcon Lake to meet Hart and find the site. They found the site, ran tests, and determined some radiation was present, but not enough to be concerned about. Mahalik's house was examined with a Geiger counter, and other than the soil samples he collected, no radiation was detected. He sent his soil samples off to the University of Colorado, and also APRO, but according to his book, he never heard back about them. At one point, the site was closed off due to the potential threat of radiation, but reopened shortly after it was determined the levels were within normal parameters. His health gradually stabilized, though about five months after the incident, he had a strange affliction hit him at work, in which he felt a burning sensation around his neck, saw the red spots from his abdomen return, and then began to swell all over like a balloon. He was taken to the hospital, treated, and released the next day. One year later, he made his way back out to Falcon Lake with a friend. This time, he found several bits of metal in the rock fissures of the landing spot. They looked to be bits of shrapnel or slag, mostly little bits except for two W-shaped bars about four and a half inches in length. Once tested, the metal turned out to be silver, with one bar registering 93% silver and the other 96%. That's pretty pure. They were also covered in a tight layer of quartz sand, not unlike the high-quality sand used in foundries for casting metal objects in molding sand. But the oddest part was perhaps the additional layer of fine minerals and uranium, which coated them and gave off an undeniable radioactive reading when tested. The case continued to be examined by government officials, ufologists, and even the U.S. government at the tail end of Project Blue Book, the official study of UFOs beginning in the 1950s. The Condon Committee, 
funded by the Air Force and headed by physics professor Edward Condon of the University of Colorado Boulder, was formed to study reports of UFOs and, after hearing this case, sent Chief Field Investigator Dr. Roy Craig up to Winnipeg to take a look. Craig was one of the folks that accompanied Mahalik on his first trip back out to the site. His conclusions were no doubt colored by the fact that Mahalik could not find the site, but still listed the case as unknown, stating that if the encounter, quote, were physically real, it would show the existence of alien flying vehicles in our environment, end quote. They, uh, Pretty big claim there, Roy. Overall, quite a bit of time and resources were used by amateurs, scientists, police, and military alike investigating this case. Enough for this case to stand out in ufology. Unsolved Mysteries even had a segment about the encounter in 1989. And Canada even issued a commemorative $20 coin depicting the event in 2018. At the end of the day, the conclusions drawn really depends on who you ask. For Mahalik, he stood by his story till the day he passed away in 1999. Skeptics have a few theories as to what took place, including it being a hoax, but those that knew Mahalik adamantly maintain his solid character. Truly, the most common conclusion drawn is that it's not clear what might have happened that day in 1967. It's not simple to prove or disprove, and I'll discuss why as we examine the claims and ask some questions that may not have answers. Where's the fun in not having a little mystery? There are several details I haven't covered in the interest of brevity, but you can find them in Chris Rutkowski's book, which I'll link to in the show notes. I've tried to hit the highlights for you, though, and now I'd like to take a closer look at some aspects of the case and talk through the science, the claims, and the comparisons between accounts. It continues to be touted as one of the most extensively investigated UFO cases we know of, so there's quite a bit of information, documents, interviews, and official tests we can reference. Caveat, I'm not claiming to be an expert in any of this, but I'm hoping that some of the questions that popped up for me might be the same ones you have, and I can talk through what comes to mind in a purely amateur and curious investigation. So what has been concluded thus far by those who believe the story top to bottom and those who are skeptical? Believers say there's a mountain of indisputable proof that Mahalik had a close encounter. They say the government covered up test results and are hiding the truth from the public. For them, the site, the debris circle, the radiation, Mahalik's physical illness and affected clothing, and corroborating reports of sightings from that weekend all line up to prove the existence of some kind of UFO encounter. I should make a point to say that Rutkowski, Mahalik, and his son Stan all claim that he never touted his experience as being one with extraterrestrials. Stan said his whole life after the encounter when asked about aliens, he would simply say, you tell me. I'll circle back to that in a little bit. Skeptics have said Mahalik fell on a grill and was too embarrassed to admit it, or the whole thing was a hoax, or he was trying to get money for the story, or he was drunk and it was a combination of these explanations. I think questioning these claims and the previous ones is essential here. So let's start with some of the science. I was very interested to know if it was even possible to set a shirt on fire with a burst of hot air or hot gas. So I enlisted the help of a scientist, 
a mad scientist, if you will. Here's what Dr. Chris Cogswell of the Mad Scientist podcast had to say. So I got Chris here, and he's perfect to talk about this uh, because this is his job. (laughs) This is stuff he has done and knows about. I wanted to find out, uh, Chris, what it would take for something to blast someone with hot air and it be enough to ignite their shirt and burn them and, you know, all this stuff. I wanted to know the science that goes into this. So we have a few assumptions that we have to make because, you know, the details aren't provided for for this stuff. But some of the ones that I had just kind of jotted down are that he was wearing uh, cotton shirts that the air was at a constant pressure and humidity. I think that's probably okay to assume. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know the humidity, but uh, I do know the temperature was around 5.6 degrees Celsius, which is 42 uh, Fahrenheit. I'm going to assume he had the, the goggles covering his eyes because from his writing, he didn't say he had them when he was up uh, at the thing and, and he didn't say he took them off. So uh, that's going to help his case <laughs> later. <laughs> I'm going to assume that the shirts were clean and dry, or maybe there was a little sweat uh, yep. on them, but otherwise, like, <laughs> that could really affect it if, if there was anything contaminating it. We have assumed that the shirt thickness for these for purposes of math, and we are kind of assuming the exposure time of the blast, where it is not a constant stream or, or constantly affecting the, the target of, of this. It is a a burst, and I believe, Chris, we, we decided on just a one-second burst. Is that right? Yeah, that's what we basically assumed. We said that it would be a one-second burst, and that's just to make the math a little bit uh, a little bit less difficult, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So give, give us one break here. And I, there's, there's a ton of variables that go into the situation, you know, including things that we couldn't possibly know, like the temperature of the gas that came out. I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong here, if this doesn't matter, but the velocity of the the exhaust that was vented, that probably has something to do with it too, right? The speed? Yeah, so uh, let's get real sciencey here for a second. So there's three basic ways that heat is transferred at the bulk scale, so at like the scale of everyday objects, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you've, you've heard of all three of them, but you might not know exactly what they mean. So there's conduction, there's convection, and then there's radiation. So conduction is two solids touching each other and um, transferring heat basically through the vibration of the atoms on the surface of the object. That's the sexy one. Yeah, that's the that's the cool one, right? That's like the two things getting real close. So that's <laughs> right, that's like the 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 hairy chest of a man. And the smooth face of a podcasting host. Exactly. Coming together and that heat radiating across, right? So that's <laughs> um that's that's conduction. Convection is uh fluid, and so in, in an engineering term or an engineering you know view, a fluid is a gas or a liquid. It's anything that um flows. Okay. So a fluid coming into contact with the surface and transferring heat by basically um Still transferring kinetic energy, but there's a lot more kinetic energy and the speed of like the displacement of the amount of, um, 
conduction, it's like the molecules don't really move, right? They're the same molecules touching. So they eventually come to a uh, thermodynamic equilibrium, right? So the temperatures will equal if you give them enough time. Yeah. Depending on like the the resistances of the heat materials and everything else. Sure. Um, with convection, that process happens more quickly. So it goes by a different calculation, like a different power law for temperature. Radiation, on the other hand, is when like energy is shot via high energy photons. So that's like the sun radiates us with heat, with energy, right? And so the heat that you get from the sun is radiation and that's temperature. That's like to the power of four. So that happens T to the fourth power as quickly. So temperature raises much more fast through radiation. So the assumptions we had to make for this calculation. So basically we were trying to calculate what we thought a sensible range for the temperature of the gas coming out of that, um, that flue, that exhaust port would have to be for the Falcon, Falcon Lake incident. Right. 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 And we, and again, we don't know. That was another thing we don't know. That's a variable is the chemical composition of the exhaust, whether it was just straight up hot air, um, you know, oxygen, or if it was some kind of, um, like carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, something like that. So right. there's all, there's all kinds of unknowns, but we're, we're kind of, <laughs> we're doing the best we can with what we do know. Right. Interestingly, it kind of, it, it sort of doesn't matter for convection at least, which is, so we assumed that we assumed that it was mostly convection that caused this because we didn't know enough about the radiation system to say, you know, he had no radiation damage, Right. So we just took it to be that this was probably hot air or something like that, an exhaust stream that was burning him. And that was ultimately the question you came to me with, right, was could a hot stream have burned his shirt up? Exactly. So we went in with the assumption, like you said before, it's a dry cotton shirt. It's we made some assumptions on the math. It would take one, you know, we assumed one second of energy transference, like a burst of heat yeah. in some way. And so from that, we kind of built up to say what we thought the uh, what we thought the the time would take right, or, or not the time, but rather what temperature difference would there have to be? Another assumption we made was that if the surface of the shirt changes temperature, it's basically like an instantaneous change of temperature for the rest of the shirt, which it's a thin like it's a thin shirt. Right. If you see in pictures and stuff, it's a pretty thin material. So that's not a bad assumption, actually. If there is a delay in the con so that would be conduction. If there is a delay in the conduction of the shirt, it's pretty minimal compared to the convection speed. Yeah, there's a couple of things we can maybe come back to once we uh, get through some of this stuff. Like um, there were two shirts apparently. One of them, I guess, completely burned up, but I don't know that it burned up instantaneously. I think he ripped it off, threw it on the ground. Maybe it maybe it burned up while on the ground and then he ripped the other one off because it was on fire too or something. But the first shirt was like a, I think a flannel type button up shirt. The under, and the second shirt was an undershirt, a white, uh, a shirt. Yeah. So we, we basically took it to be that it would be pretty much instantaneous. Sure. And so the equations we used were, we used two equations. The first one was figuring out what the energy input had to be for it to be, you know, one second of, uh, of heat transference, I guess you'd say. Yeah. So we took a heat capacity of dry air or rather of cotton of 1,500 joules per kilogram degree Celsius. We said it had to get up to a final temperature of uh, 125 degrees C. And that's, that's the temperature cotton 
ignites, combusts? What, what? From room temperature. It's like how much, what temperature does it have to change to? Yeah. Okay. Right. And so from that, we got that it would be 187,000 joules per kilogram. And so if that was in one second of transference, it would be pretty, pretty small, right? Or not small. It'd be a lot of energy that has to be transferred. Right. Again, this is kind of a crazy number for engineers listening. They're like, that's the consumption of a person's full energy in one year. Like, yeah, but it's a UFO, right? So don't even worry about it. So the, the next thing we did was we took the density of cotton, which is about 1.56 grams per centimeter cubed. And so we came up with, in a second, you would need 292.5 joules per centimeter cubed to be transferred. And so we assumed it was a centimeter cubed of material. And so for listeners, a centimeter cubed is a milliliter of volume. Not very much. Not very much, right? But it's cotton, so it's pretty non-dense. But still, it's not a lot of material, right? It's It makes sense that this would be, you know, shirt, amount of shirt or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's in that ballpark, at least, potentially. So the next thing was the uh, heat from the air. So the air temperature, we took it would be the heat flow needed is equal to H, which is the convection coefficient times the area of material that's in contact with the air times the difference in temperatures. And so um, we essentially found from that calculation with the heat capacity or the convection coefficient of air being between somewhere between 0.5 and 1,000, we found a temperature of between like 900 Kelvin and around 400 Kelvin. So somewhere between, you know, 200 degrees C and like 500-ish degrees C for this shirt to get hot enough. So, and, and the reason we went for this like 200 degrees C temperature which, which, by the way, is is around 392 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about the temperature that cotton will auto-ignite. It'll, it, it can spontaneously catch into flame at that temperature. Right. Um, so that's the calculation, basically. That's how, we, that's how we did this, ultimately. Yeah, so then the, the question is, with the low end of that, three, uh, 200 C, 392 Fahrenheit, that's a very achievable temperature. You don't need a UFO to generate something like that. Right, no, you don't. If we assume that all the the math there, you know, is is pretty much in line with what happened, then the shirt ignites, and then it it just has to kind of like spread on its own, right? Well, Which... so yeah, so be, so okay, so <laughs> so first off, just for listeners to get a sense of you know how safe their bridges and things are, um, you know, because I am I am a I am a trained engineer. The other set of assumptions I used for this calculation gave me a final temperature of like, oh, what was it? It was crazy. It was huge. It you was said like it was more than this. Yeah, more higher than the surface of the sun or something. Yeah, it was significantly hotter than the surface of the sun. So there's a, you know, we can make bad assumptions here. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and things can get kind of wild, right? So depending on how long we say the burst is and how close to instantaneous it is and everything else, the temperature needed gets infinitely hotter or, or yeah. higher. I guess what could be the case would be there's an intense burst of, of heat from this thing. Mm -hmm. Combustion, too, doesn't always appear as a flame. Something can be on fire or combusting without there being a, a plasma plume, which is really what the flame is that you see. So it could very well be that there was technically a flame propagating through the air that hit him that again, it was just hot enough to become like a flame that hot air discharged, hit his shirt, caused it to become on fire. He then, you know, pulls it off or whatever. And, um, 
And yeah, there's enough material there and it's hot enough that it can continue to consume the shirt. So yeah, that's, that's plausible at least. Do you know if, uh, if something like that, what that does to skin tissue? So it kind of depends again, because the so with, with fire, the danger is really with conduction. Convection is, I mean, is a danger as well, I suppose. But if like, you ever see those videos on YouTube of, you know, like stupid kids putting acetone on their shirt, on their, on their arms or whatever, then lighting the acetone and it doesn't actually burn them. It doesn't hurt their skin. Yeah. It just burns the acetone away. Sure. The reason that doesn't, the reason that doesn't hurt them is because there's not enough time for the flame temperature to actually conduct and hit the surface of the skin. Mm. When there's actually a plasma plume of there's actual, that, that actual flame itself that we think of, when we think of fire, that's convection that heats your hand. It's the hot air from the heat that's actually uh, hitting your skin and, and causing the burns. In this case, if there's like a shirt on fire, it might be a couple seconds before you notice. Sure. Because it would take a little bit of time for that heat to conduct to you. And also since since the hot air will rise naturally as it's as the temperature goes up of the gas, of the surrounding gas, I should say, the density goes down. And so it starts to rise up in the air. So it actually would rise up away from you as well. So you might not notice for a couple of seconds while you're on fire. I just saw a video of, I think, maybe Ace Freely having his hair set on fire or something on Reddit. And people yeah. were like, heavy metal, you know, and it's like, man, that's a that's a wig, Maury. You know, like you can tell that's a damn wig. Um, lots of spray, hairspray. Right, lots of hairspray there for the, for the flames to eat up. So... Anyways, all that being said, if air that hot got in contact with your skin, you would certainly feel burns. I, you know, I, I would imagine at least third degree burns. What do you think? What do you think of that with two layers, two, you know, thin layers, but two layers nonetheless of cotton in between that and, and skin? I mean, it mitigates it some, right? But is it is it enough to cause just first degree? Because that's what he said he ended up with. So it really depends on the... It depends on the amount of exposure and it depends on the, like what kind of protection he had on him. Yeah. I can say that in industrial accidents in chemical plants and like refineries and things that quick, you know, releases of hot steam or hot air are enough to cause third degree burns in very short periods of time. Yeah. And those people are wearing, you know, personal protective equipment and things. I mean, it's not like they're, you know, they're not like preparing for a burn or for a fire or anything, but still, you know, that does happen fairly regularly in chemical industry. So it wouldn't surprise me necessarily. However, for it to have created those, the pattern, you know, the perfect pattern on his skin. Yeah. That's a little question. That's a little harder to imagine that it would be able to transfer all the way through the first shirt, the second shirt. And then his, you know, the way that I've always viewed it is almost, he, he had on his like outer flannel and then, uh-huh. but again, it was so cold outside that it would, you would have to think that he was wearing that outer flannel. It was actually closed. Sure. Yeah. That's what I'm assuming that was closed. Yeah. So that, mm, I don't know. I don't know. It could because be. It there's could be, also at least uh, six to eight inches. If we're going by his measurement, he said he was about a hand's length away from the thing. There's also six to eight inches of, of just air that has to pass through to get to the shirt in the first place, let alone get through two shirts to the skin. And so 
I don't know if that's gonna, you know, if if that squares with a how hot air can can damage skin tissue, uh, and b the pressure it would take, you know, for that to to shoot out so precisely and and overcome the distance and the uh, the shirts mm. to get those patterns. So there's the more variables that are in this, the more my eye starts to squint and say, you know. It it seems a little far-fetched. So industrial burns, like industrial thermal burns, um, the danger isn't just the burn itself. It's the internal damage that it can cause. So it can, you know, you can have a burn deep enough that it it goes through the skin and everything else, and it actually affects internal organs. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not... One would expect that if if this was able to hit his skin like that through the layers of his clothing and everything else that it would uh, it wouldn't stop there it wouldn't stop there but again i mean i don't know it's if it is like you said he's six to eight inches away that may not necessarily affect the temperature difference too too much because it's air you know and it's again if we're assuming it's convection that's mostly doing this then that you know sure it'll make a difference but maybe not so so much but um actually no that's not true because the difference in energy radiated would be distance squared um, something like that. It would be like distance farther away in distance. The energy propagates far, far and far less uh, with distance. So actually that might, that might make some difference there, but in either case, um, it just seems very, it's, it's, it's very odd. It is, you know, and then <laughs> if, if this happened to somebody who was like at a company and they said to me this hot, you know, I opened up a steam valve and it, it burst and this hot steam hit my shirt and it burned my shirts off but all I got was this like little circle of no hair on my chest. I would be suspicious. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so. To complicate it. Um, he also said that his, uh, his hat got burned uh, a little bit and pictures of it show these little, I would say like quarter size to nickel size burns at the top of his uh, uh, forehead and then some hairline singeing. So like, I'm also assuming that from his abdomen to his forehead, that is a good at least a foot, if not more, I would say. But let's just say a foot to be to make it simple. This is the other sticky point for me. How did then the hot air hit his abdomen and yet also hit him up at the top enough to set everything on fire at once? Right. And yet his face was fine. His his chest, I think there was maybe a little singeing, but that was just at hair follicles and everything else was like it didn't I don't think anything said that he even looked like he had a tan or anything, you know. Yeah, well, maybe so a little it, redness maybe, but So the red the redness would make sense. I mean, again, the beauty of the beauty I guess of physics at this uh level you know, of kind of the bulk scale is that everything really does essentially act like billiard balls. <laughs> so you can think, you can imagine that if this thing is coming from a source, so there's a point source, let's say six to eight inches away from him, that's shooting hot air. And the way that he describes it, I think too, he describes it as the thing is, is it above him when it shoots or is it below him? Here's, this is a, this is another sticky point that I jotted down. So it is on the underside of this craft and underside is generous because it looks like a saucer, obviously, but the, it's almost an inverted cone, 
that's just very wide. So I, I guess imagine like a martini glass, right? And the vent is on the underside of this martini glass. So it's already like pointed at an angle down. And then he says it, it tilted before it did that. So the whole craft tilted up, which means the vent was aimed even farther down. This is another thing that, that was kind of a red flag for me, just kind of visualizing it, unless I'm just misinterpreting everything. But to me, the angle of it, I, I don't know. It se- that seems weird and wonky as well. Think about it if it was a burst of water. That's really the best way to visualize that. You know, He's claiming that this water, for some reason, specifically hit him in this one part of the chest, very hot, you know, very strongly. But it also just left like little bursts on his head and hair and everything else. It doesn't really make sense. You know, if if anything, it would I mean, you'd expect some, I guess, spread from the heat. But um, I don't know. I mean, again, it's one of those things that it could or couldn't give his story credibility, I suppose. Yeah. But at the yeah. end of the day, it's kind of a it doesn't make to me. It doesn't sound like it makes a lot of physical sense, but I don't know. To summarize, it is possible for gas or air to get hot enough to reach the ignition point of cotton. I did a little at-home experiment to demonstrate how hot superheated air can get. In my little setup with propane torch and flask, I was able to ignite a match, scorch paper, and discolor cotton. I think the highest temp I got to was about 370 degrees Fahrenheit, so just under the ignition point. And given a little more control on the setup, I bet I could have achieved combustion in the shirt. But those were also all done with sustained contact, not in bursts. What the case seems to imply is that a burst of hot gas hit him, caused his shirt to ignite, and caused a pattern of spots on his abdomen, not to mention burn his cap and singe his hairline, both of which were above his heavy goggles more than a foot away from the area of the burns. Now, I could believe the shirt caught fire, And that's what singed everything else. So maybe we can assume that's what happened because assuming the hot air did it all at once to me is asking a bit much. We don't have the first shirt he was wearing. We only have what's left of the undershirt. There are pictures of it and looking closely, you can see that the front is burned away around the chest area and a pattern of dots is distinct. But lo, look closer and you'll see that the dots are actually on the back side of the shirt and look to be between around about the shoulder blades. They do not match what is on his abdomen. You can also see clear edges in a square shape framing the dots. Why? Aye, there's the rub. I can't suss this out. It's a huge red flag for me. It's almost as if he left a hot iron on the shirt and it caught fire. I just don't know what to make of this pattern being on the back of the shirt and also having these edges. The physical illness is very compelling in this case. That he suffered from something is beyond argument. He clearly had an illness, blackouts, dizziness, appetite loss, and headaches. The rashes and swelling may or may not have been connected. Unfortunately, I was not able to find a physician to talk to about it. Interesting side note, one doctor's report mentioned lesions on his chest and legs. It's in connection with these rashes he was experiencing. But the question is, what caused it? Why was there a smell of sulfur that stayed with him after? It sure seemed like radiation with the symptoms, 
And as we discussed, I'm not entirely convinced a blast of hot gas could be so focused and yet only cause first-degree burns, which doctors said were thermal. I asked Chris about that as well. Could you imagine any any source of energy um, that would release that would uh, cause this sort of damage and also, you know, leave him ill for a while? Like, how about microwaves or gamma rays or something like that? So radiation, if it was if it was radiation, he'd be a lot sicker. That's kind of kind of issue one. Radiation isn't really discreet in the way that it affects body parts. So mm. if it was radiation, there would be evidence after the fact of him being irradiated. And there would also be evidence of like, frankly, his symptoms would have been different. You know, he didn't his skin didn't really burn. Like you said, um, someone who's someone who's been affected by radiation, like a radiation burn is very, very obvious what it is. He didn't have any conjunctivitis, which is. Your, your eyes, the conjunctiva of your eyes becoming inflamed and and um, injured by very, very hot light or very, not hot, but very bright light. He didn't have anything like that that happened. What about just like bloodshot? The the officer that, that saw him right after said that he had bloodshot eyes, thought he was drunk. So bloodshot could be, right? That is, that is a type of uh, damage like that. Mm-hmm. So that could be for sure. But at the end of the day, really, all of that could also be caused by hot, a hot gas. So we mm. can't really differentiate between the two. And again, if this burn damage was more extensive, cause this happened in, you know, the 60s, 70s, if this burn damage was more extensive than we realized, he might've had internal damage from the burn. I mean, we're, you know, we don't really know how badly he was burned. So, uh, we have some sense that it was like first degree burns on the outer surface of his skin and everything else. Mm-hmm. But you know, I don't know. Our our knowledge and our treatment of burns and of just damage generally has gotten a lot better. So sure. I would think that he might have had symptoms that we didn't even recognize as symptoms back then. Hmm. Is there any such thing as radiation that, that just kind of hits you and then after an hour it goes away? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's really kind of what... So the main damage type of radiation is... Or the main damage that radiation does to the skin is there's enough energy that it actually breaks the DNA or the the cell, uh, the cells that make up your body, right? It damages the cells. Mm -hmm. And then those cells, like if it affects the DNA, it can cause mutations or damage that that affect, um, basically make your cells stop being able to decide when to stop replicating, which is is cancer. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that it would just damage the skin and cause kind of uh, radicalization of various chemicals in your cells, that would cause things like, you know, cell death and sloughing off of skin or the loss of hair or any of those other things. When people think about radiation damage, like you would become irradiated, you would notice radiation damage, but you don't really become irradiated per se. That only really happens when you ingest a radioactive uh, nuclei. So like in the case of Chernobyl, if you, you know, if you were just there during the blast, you might've had, you might've had radio nuclei, interacting with your skin or with your body and you might have ingested them through breathing. But if it was just the gamma ray, you wouldn't necessarily have that effect like x-rays, right? X-rays are a good example of this where it affects your body, but it's such a small dosage that it, you know, it doesn't, it it leaves you right. It doesn't affect you permanently in any way or even a sunburn. A sunburn is another good example of this as well, right? Um, With enough prolonged exposure, you can get cancer from too much sun tanning. 
um, or sunburns. However, that kind of initial time, um, it does damage your skin. You might get red and everything else, but in a day or two, it'll go away. So can you imagine anything that um, that would hit him like that and it would be a type of radiation and then he's fine when after he gets home, gets a shower? The part that doesn't, I mean, they're definitely, you know, it could be, I mean, did you, did you see Chernobyl on HBO? I haven't seen it yet. No. Oh my God. It's so good, man. What are you doing? <laughs> All right. So it's really good. That series actually does a really good job of showing off kind of what radiation sickness and what kind of the damage and things and the precautions they took could do. And in one of the parts, actually, it's interesting. They talk about these, um, when Chernobyl, when the reactor blew, there were these carbon like graphite, really, it's carbon, but there were these graphite uh, parts of the reactor that were highly, highly irradiated. And so there would be people who would like pick up those rocks and their hands would get radiation poisoning or radiation damage, I should say. But the rest of their body would just have like a really bad sunburn. But then there's there's the skin on their hands would start to like die. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that if he was exposed to uh, something like that, you know, a single point source of very high dose radiation, it could have, I suppose, done that. The problem is he had no symptoms of radiation poisoning in the sense of in the way that we would expect for like a high dosage event like that. Hot air could very well have done all of those things to him. Um, the, the bloodshot eyes, the kind of malaise and prolonged damage he said he felt, all of that could be caused by a burn, a severe burn or um, just exposure to chemicals too. It doesn't, like we said, it doesn't have to necessarily have been air that, that hit him. It could have been another chemical. Um, I think a larger question is, or for me at least, as someone who's, you know, uh, who dabbles in the UFO weirdness occasionally. Right. The part for me that's most interesting, I suppose, is when you hear these old UFO stories, a lot of the times they are kind of, it's like steampunk science where it's it's what the people of the 40s or 50s or 60s thought was going to be high tech in the future. Right. So the famous case is the one that comes from, or the famous case for me at least that always brings this to mind is the story of uh, Woody Derenberger, who was famous, um, still pretty, I guess, relatively famous considering, who was the first person to encounter kind of the Mothman slash Ingrid, Ingrid Cold character. Mm-hmm. So that story seems really legit and scary and everything else. What people don't realize is Woody would then say that some aliens, Ingrid Cold and his family, got naked with him on a spaceship and took him to Lanulos, their magical planet where everyone was nude all the time and the men and women kind of looked like each other and, you know, they ate pills for food and, you know, you know it's this crazy land. And then he, he describes the ship and when the ship lands in front of his house, he describes how the door opens like a sedan car and makes a big metallic clunk. <laughs> and then he talks about how on the ship he was looking at these big tube televisions that had color images of space outside and everything else. It's very like old school Star Trek, you yeah. know, what they thought the future would look like. Yeah. This is another example of that maybe. Um, if we were to travel through space, I think it's very unlikely that we would exhaust anything from the ship unless we desperately had to. Yeah. We would be recycling. You know, there are uh, there are research studies now being done by NASA to recycle pee back into water. 
and nutrients for plants to recycle the air that you breathe. You know, you breathe in O2 and then you exhale CO2. There are research projects going on specifically to capture that CO2, convert it back to oxygen so that you don't need to bring heavy oxygen canisters with you to space. Right. Um, It would only make sense that, again, assuming any of this is true, that these space beings or whatever would do similar kinds of engineering. Um, Unless I guess the argument is, you know, they've developed such magical energy capabilities or such advanced energy capabilities that they don't need to worry about things like, you know, how heavy the ship is or how long it takes or anything else because they can always just pull from an infinite source of energy. But yeah, yeah. It it, it gets into that weird uh, speculative uh, section of it where we don't know, we, we couldn't even possibly guess at if it's extraterrestrial, you know, what their systems are like or why they're even here or any of that stuff. Like, that's that's tough when you're talking about these topics when you're trying to figure out the science of it because there there's just some things that will be impossible to figure out. And a lot of that comes down to intent and the uh, capabilities, you know, of things that you... <laughs> You just don't, if assuming you're dealing with something of an advanced civilization or technology, there's just too many assumptions that you have to make for it to even be worth talking about, in my opinion. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if, if, um, if Hellier has taught us anything, it's that it's all goblins actually. So it's goblins and synchronicity. So, right. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't even matter. You know, it's not science. (laughs) It's goblins. I can't really speculate on what all he suffered from after the incident, so suffice it to say most of his symptoms were highly unusual out of the blue, and while I don't think it proves the encounter happened, it certainly lends some credibility to the story. The radiation angle is an interesting one. There is radiation, there isn't, one spot has it, others don't. What was said to have been found was that the area, being full of granite, does have a lot of ambient radiation. His soil samples have had tests run on them even up through 1994. Some investigators found radium-226, one of the more dangerous versions of radium. But most tests came back with natural radioactivity. In fact, some researchers have argued that wristwatches of people involved in the investigation caused false readings due to the radium-luminous paint used to make the hands glow in the dark. Mahalik would later say that on subsequent visits, vegetation around the landing area was dead and never grew back. It would be interesting to see how it looks today, and I do think they have horseback tours to it, and also to maybe test any trees around there to see if a determination could be made if that was indeed the case. I'm not sure what to make of the silver shrapnel he supposedly found a year later either. Radiation was coming from them, but it was due to a thin layer of pitch blend, a natural mineral and ore that is found in vein deposits and pretty abundant in Manitoba. He was out there specifically to look for silver, so is it odd to find chunks of it in rock fissures in a silver-rich area? Maybe it is if it's that pure? I'm not sure. But if they're saying it came from the ship... Why was it missed in the initial searches, and why was the radiation aspect of it missed? The Condon Report also wondered about this. 
Do people say the heat from the thing melted the silver in silver veins in the quartz? Because he touched the craft and only melted part of his glove. Pretty sure the radiant heat to melt silver in veins would be enough to cause some serious damage to a person. Let me hit you with a couple more questions that popped up for me. Ones which I consider red flags to believability in this case. Mahalik's account with the officer on the highway is different than the officer's report. If you remember from his own book, he said he tried to get help and the officer brushed him off. The officer's full report tells a different story, however. At approximately 3 p.m. May 20th, 1967, I was patrolling PTH number one, one half mile west of Falcon Beach, Manitoba, when I noticed a man walking on the south shoulder of the highway towards Falcon Beach. He was wearing a gray cap, brown jacket with no shirt, light colored trousers, and carrying a brown briefcase. This subject, upon seeing the police car, began waving his arms excitedly. I turned around on the highway and drove back to see what he wanted. He shouted to me to stay away from him. I asked him why, and he replied saying he had seen two spaceships. He said I might get some sort of skin disease or radiation if I came too close. He seemed very upset. I asked for some identification and he gave me a document pertaining to prospecting. I inquired as to the circumstances surrounding his unusual experience, and Mr. Mahalik related the following story. He apparently had been prospecting approximately one mile west and two miles north of Falcon Beach. About 12 noon, he sighted the two spaceships. He said they were rotating at a high rate of speed and emitted a red glow. The spaceships landed near him and he reportedly touched one. The exhaust or some sort of hot substances came off the spaceship, burning his shirt, chest, and hat. The spaceships remained a while, how long he was not certain, then flew away. He left the bush to get medical treatment. Mahalik showed me his cap, the back of which was burnt. I wanted to examine his shirt, however he would not let me, and kept backing away every time I got close to him. As far as I was able to determine, the back of Mahalik's head was not burnt. It appeared to me that Mahalik had taken a black substance, possibly wood ashes, and rubbed it on his chest. At no time during my conversations with Mahalik would he allow me close enough to him to definitely see whether or not he was injured. I asked him why his hands were not burnt if he had touched the spaceship and he would not answer me. At my request he drew a diagram of the spaceship which appeared to be saucer shaped. I could not smell the odor of liquor on Mahalik. His general appearance was not dissimilar to that of a person who has overindulged. His eyes were bloodshot and when questioned in detail, could or would not answer coherently. I offered to drive him to Falcon Beach and arrange for someone to treat him, but he declined, saying he was alright. Approximately one half hour later, he came to the detachment office and asked for me. He would not enter the office. So this account is in stark contrast to Mahalik's. Sounds like he was barely cooperative and lied about the events right after that. According to his story, he went to the hotel and hung out in the woods for at least an hour before going to his room and then asking the restaurant for a doctor. Oh, and don't forget he called the newspaper before calling his wife. Something else that troubles me is the officer's description of him carrying a briefcase. Obviously, he needed to carry his stuff and something, but according to his son, 
he always carried a green haversack. Indeed, a briefcase is an odd thing to bring prospecting, and I, I can't imagine the officer would mistake a backpack or satchel with a briefcase. How does that square? Another question. He claimed to have made a sketch of the craft at the site. Why not show that to the officer instead of drawing a new one? Why lie about what happened after and about how the officer treated him? The report seems to have enough info to me to be believable. It's weird. I'm willing to overlook some missed details or contradictions, such as his not mentioning a tape measure and what he packed but finding it on the return trip, or his description of the craft having an opening near the top but then walking over to an open door that he hadn't mentioned to stick his head in. These are details that can simply be forgotten or left out by mistake, though one could try and make a case that his story wasn't completely straight with such inconsistencies. The report is my biggest hang-up, though. I have to give a brief mention to the spinning compass. Instead of bolstering the claim, this actually makes me think it's fabricated, since this is a common trope in supposed encounters and it just happened to conveniently keep spinning after the craft had taken off and only stopped after he had stood in awe, stamped out a fire, and walked over to pick it up and look at it, which, by his account, was well after the craft had disappeared into the sky. I find the convenience of that detail a little suspicious. It's also highly suspect that he was only able to return to the location for the first time when he was with a vocal conspiracist, not to mention find all the physical evidence while never with officials. He found the area fine on the day it happened after having scouted it earlier. Why did it take him several tries to find again? I can dismiss the oddity of it, but it sure seems weird to get back there finally with someone who distrusts the government and was soon after arrested for tax evasion, mind you. People in the hoax camp point to the fact that the debris ring, the radiation, and the shrapnel could have been planted or manufactured. Of course, there's no evidence to this assertion, but I do agree it's suspicious to involve someone with a vested interest in UFOs, that being Barry Thompson of Capro, and someone who wanted to own the government every chance he got to investigate and find the place when authorities couldn't. Stan Mihalik even commented how his father's language and actions changed after speaking to Jerry Hart at length. Chris Rutkowski doesn't believe it was a hoax, and did a good job laying out lots of details and questioning some actions and reports in his book. He actually knew the family personally and vouched for Stefan's honesty. Speaking of Barry Thompson, there was apparently some point of contention later on once Mihalik wrote the little booklet of his account. Side note, he wrote it in Polish and had it translated to English, then had it published in a small run. He said it was never designed to make money, which I believe, as it was 40 pages and only had one run, which the family soon ran out of. The shady part that didn't sit well with the family, understandably, was that Thompson had published a story in a Capro newsletter in which he offered to sell the booklet for a dollar a pop, and just to make sure the money got to McCulloch, customers should send the money to him. After that, he never came around again, and they don't know how much money he ended up making off of it. Sounds to me like he was a real Barry Thompson of a bitch. But the point is, 
a few folks have accused Mahalik of making the story up to sell it. I don't think that's the case, and I think their anger at Thompson selling it is justified. Some people have argued that Mahalik concocted the story to protect a claim he wanted to file for prospecting the area, that it would scare off other potential claimants or jumpers. He did eventually file a claim on the area in the fall of 1967, but according to an interesting addendum in squad leader Bisky's RCAF report, when asked to provide the location of the site, Mr. Mahalik objected very strongly on the basis that during his June 25th hunt, he had in fact located what he searched for originally, and until such time as he could stake his claim, he had no intention of having anyone go near this area. There was no shortage of strange behavior Mahalik exhibited, according to RCAF and RCMP reports. Maybe he wanted to protect a claim, but what an odd way to go about it. Mahalik is said to have never concluded that it was aliens, but in his own writing, he alludes pretty strongly to it being extraterrestrial. Perhaps our scientists are ashamed to admit that somewhere there is an intelligence and technology greater than ours. And as for the government, it is possible that they are afraid that they will cause national panic if they reveal all they know. The public had a right to know whether this thing came from our planet or another world, whether it was friendly or harmful. People should be told what it was about. That's not a huge red flag to me, but uh, I think to say that he never believed it was aliens is misleading. At best, he thought it was military or just didn't know what it was. This case is famous for the extensive amount of investigation that has been done. And because of the numerous claims and contradictions and possible motives, it's hard to draw a satisfactory conclusion. Just when something seems to coalesce into making sense, something else pops up to throw a wrench at your face. The government involvement seemed genuinely interested and concerned at first, but some folks have pointed to the fact that, as the case wore on, its actions seemed to get suspicious. The issue tried to be raised in Parliament and was cut off by the Speaker of the House. Months later, the Defense Minister said it was not their intention to make public the report of the alleged sighting. Nearly a year later, one MP finally got a hold of the file on case and noticed there were pages missing, including the study of some of the items of evidence and any conclusion that might have been drawn. In his book, Rutkowski makes no small effort to hide disdain for quote-unquote skeptics, going so far as to call squad leader Bisky a devout skeptic and insinuate he didn't believe any of the claims because of his skeptical bias. Yeah, if Bisky had closed the case before even opening it, that would be bad, but he seemed to just question the events and the person relating them, something I think is warranted and necessary in that situation. The Condon Report is similarly questioned for skeptical bias. It's telling how skepticism is referred to as a derogatory term in the book. For his part, Bisky questioned many angles, including if Mahalik was a drunk. By most accounts, he was not, although there was a supposed bartender who was interviewed and said Mahalik tied more than a few on the night before the incident. People have been quick to dismiss this as hearsay, and even I would contest him being drunk, going miles into the bush, hallucinating, or whatever it would take for that to play into the case. I guess, I guess he could have been plastered, stumbled into the wilderness, started a campfire, passed out on it, and dreamed the whole thing. Which... 
Boy, that sounds as deliciously ridiculous saying it as it did when I thought it. At times, the fact that he was an industrial mechanic also pops up, as if it had something to do with the incident. Now, people have tried to connect a possible accident or the silver shrapnel to this fact, but it's a pretty tenuous connection at best. There are strings on the corkboard that could probably connect, but it would be better if we knew a motive. Something that strikes me as odd is how many times it's mentioned in official reports that he was unwilling to cooperate with the police. From the first report by the road to the request to see his soil samples and evidence in his basement, which he refused, to not taking him to the site without a claim. Most accounts that speak highly of him seem to say he was always fully cooperative and wanted to do his duty as a citizen. The contradictions aren't numerous, but they give me pause when considering the veracity of the case. At the end of the day, we have a story, evidence, and behavior. It's hard to dispute an anecdote. As you guys may know by now, I don't consider anecdotes very worthwhile in a case other than serving as a starting place, and in some cases, entertainment. Evidence, and I'm using quotes now, has been brought forth, but if there are possible logical explanations, why are those dismissed by believers? All of the artifacts related to the case are not only reproducible, they all came from one single witness out of sight of officials. Clothing items can be burned, radiation was shown to be within normal parameters, debris can be formed into a circle, silver slag can be planted at the site. Look, I'm not saying all this was done, rather that simply having evidence doesn't automatically prove an account. None of the evidence is remarkable, and as the saying goes, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Right now, the whole thing hinges on a story. Now, the, the truly intriguing parts of the case are the illness he went through and the way the government handled the case. And that's why I can't dismiss this case as closed, lots of fluff, no substance, move along. My opinion, for what it's worth, after reading over this and Rutkowski's work, I'm suspicious that all of his story was true. The contradiction in accounts with the officer on the highway is fishy enough to taint most of this case for me. I've told you other red flags, but just as I don't believe the evidence is strong enough to prove the story, I also don't believe there's enough hard evidence to disprove it. Not that the burden is on me to disprove it, but circumstantial evidence for me points to too much stuff not adding up. To be honest, I, I think he could have witnessed something that day. And if so, probably military, or black budget, or very classified stuff. To say he hoaxed it, I think, might be going a bit too far. I mean, it may have been a combination of things, including evidence planted by a third party to bolster the claim, but who knows? Motives are nothing but speculation at this point. If he fell on a grill or campfire, why concoct a tale about UFOs? If he wanted to protect his claim, why concoct a tale about UFOs? If he left the iron sitting on his shirt, was having an affair, dancing with the Divial in the pale moonlight, why concoct... You get the idea. There is no strong consensus as to what may or may not have happened that day in 1967, which is why the story and the mystery remains. 
Perhaps we'll get a declassified report from the Canadian government someday that will shed new light on the case. But I wouldn't hold my breath for it. For now, we're left with a wild story, artifacts that are entirely reproducible, and an extensive investigation which basically resulted in more questions, and probably the same amount of hot air that may have hit Stefan Mihalik back in 1967. That's the Falcon Lake incident, in a glowing, semi-radioactive, maple syrup-covered nutshell. If you want to learn more details, again, I encourage you to check out Chris Rutkowski's book, When They Appeared. He did a ton of research and included both Stefan's account and his son Stan's memoirs of the whole affair, not to mention official documents and reports. I don't get the impression he and I lean the same way after considering all the evidence, but I think he did a good job exploring and presenting it. I'll have a link to it in my show notes, and if you use my link, I'll get a little kickback from Mr. Amazon, which would be much appreciated. For now, it's time to walk up and burn the tips of your ears from touching these puns. Alright, low-hanging fruit ban. No puns about the guy who encountered a ship landing piloted by a dashing rogue and his hairy friend in the Millennium Falcon Lake incident. That's off the table. Back in the 60s, Canada implemented a short-lived program aimed at capturing criminals with outstanding warrants by pumping money into a reward system for vigilant citizens. Apparently the Royal Canadian Mounted Police needed help, but we never really got official word on the outcome of the Royal Canadian Bounty Increase. There was an office party at a business in Winnipeg back in 1967. People brought homemade baked goods to share, but one person's kind culinary gesture turned out to be a nightmare, as most of the office got sick with nausea, headaches, and rashes. To this day, no one knows what caused the sickness from the foul cupcake incident. <laughs> foul cupcake. <laughs> what is wrong with me? That'll be puns. Thank you for coming along on this ride with me, and stay tuned for more. I didn't even realize it, but it's March already, Mother Hubbards, which means Season 9 will kick off before you know it. Be on the lookout for more interviews, roundtables, bonus audiobook narration, and deep dives like this one. There may not be as many deep dives just with the possible work going into the documentary coming up, but hey, things will still be happening on the feed for sure. Huge thanks to Gabrielle and Niels for your donations. Huge thanks to Elizabeth and High Hills Jacques for buying me a coffee at ko-fi.com slash blurry photos. You guys are all amazing. Thank you. Thanks for dropping me a line and the kind words from Zaire, Will, Aaron, Mark, Matthew, Teddy, K. Krabs, Sinister Bone, and Jinxed Pose. And special thanks to longtime fan Puffsalite Ghost. Great to hear from you, Puffy G. And also, if you want to get a hold of Dark Mark, try him on Twitter, at Blastro Podcast. Thank you guys for writing in. If you guys want to support the show, check out the many ways to do so at blurryphotos.org. And if you can't make a monetary contribution, you can still toss a five-star review to your Witcher over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget the Kickstarter will be live on March 10th, and I think you guys are going to enjoy what kind of trouble we're getting up to. For this episode of Blurry Photos, 
I have been the hot expulsion of gas, David Flora. Till next time. <laughs>